I'm Chris Michael, and this is Reverberate, where I'm delving into incredible stories about when music soundtracked a turning point in history. There were no musicians, no broadcasts. The radio fell silent. There was this famous metronome just going to count time and to show that Leningrad was still alive, still on air, but the amount of broadcasting was minimized and there was no music during that, I think, December, January, there was no music on the radio. The year is 1942. We're in the Russian city of Leningrad, or what we now call St. Petersburg. It has always been a city known for its culture, but now it's haunted by war. Since last September, the Nazis have laid siege to the city, trapping its residents. Almost nothing is going in or out. Thousands have already died, and more are dying as disease and mass starvation take hold. Things that were happening in Leningrad were not in the press. There was cannibalism, there was crime, there were just people literally, you know, starving to death in droves, whole families. That's Marina Frolova Walker. Born and raised in Moscow, she's now a professor of music history at the University of Cambridge, with a particular interest in the relationship between Soviet leaders like Stalin and music. But there was also a lot of heroism and people trying to continue to do things that they were supposed to do, even, you know, just to keep their minds alive, because it's, you know, hunger makes your mind kind of dull. So there were a lot of writers that continued to write, a lot of musicians who continued to perform as far as they could. Yes, incredibly, despite the horrendous living conditions and the constant German bombardment, artistic creativity still found a way to survive. In the spring, there were, you know, slightly better conditions, just a a sigh of relief, you know, a little bit for for some people. And they wanted to boost morale, of course, of the people who lived in Leningrad, who depended on this radio. That might have been the only connection they had to the world in their frozen apartments. In this bid to boost morale, the Soviet authorities turned to Dmitry Shostakovich. Shostakovich was a pianist and a composer, already famous for his challenging and dynamic symphonies. He'd had an up-and-down relationship with Stalin, but just recently he'd won the exclusive Stalin Prize, a state honor. Shostakovich wanted to fight. He'd already tried to enlist in the army to fight on the front line, not once, but twice. But both times he was turned away because he had bad eyesight. Instead, he joined the volunteer firefighters in Leningrad, keeping watch for incoming German bombs. But he wanted to do more. He felt that if he couldn't go to the front, he had to do something through his music. Now, suddenly, Shostakovich was tasked with writing a new symphony, one with a patriotic goal, to instill a sense of pride in his fellow city residents amid their terrible suffering he set to work on what would become his epic Seventh Symphony, 
It was split into four movements, or musical chapters, each with its own style, rhythm, and thematic atmosphere. He finished the first three in Leningrad. But eventually, the assault on the city became so brutal that the authorities worried he might not be able to complete it. So Shostakovich, his wife, and his children were all evacuated to a nearby town. It was there that he put the finishing touches on the fourth and final movement. Rehearsals for the premiere began immediately. And during the rehearsals already, there was a sense that this is a great piece of music, which is incredibly important as a weapon in this war. I think the secret, the musical secret, lies in the first movement, because the first movement is the easiest to understand, and it has a a kind of battle scene, what we call the invasion episode. It actually tells you a story. It starts with a peaceful life in a lovely themes and the major key at the start. You can imagine people enjoying themselves, being carefree and happy, you know, possibly something to do with nature, very pastoral theme, you know, everything quietens down and then from this silence emerges this snare drum pattern which is going to be repeated and you can see that something is growing and approaching you gradually. It's a very cinematic way of writing music, you can almost imagine that you can see an army approaching. Five months after Shostakovich completed the Seventh Symphony, in March 1942, it premiered in Moscow. The performance was recorded for an important reason. As well as inspiring Russians, the Soviets wanted to send a powerful message to the German forces massed on the battlefield outside the city, trying to starve the city to death. It's a kind of incredible story, but it seems to be true from all accounts that the Russians were actually playing it through loudspeakers on the battlefield, yeah, or, you know, so that the Germans could hear it. It's very hard to imagine, but there is some evidence that it actually had incredible power because it was culture, yeah, and the German nation always associated themselves with culture. They were the purveyors of high culture. And, of course, they saw whole races of people, as they described it, yeah, including the Jewish people and the Slavic peoples, as inferior, as barbaric. Yeah, and suddenly you have this culture working against them on the battlefield. I think that that's a kind of powerful symbolic statement. They also wanted to give the Allies in the West a sense of their plight. Remember, until recently, communist Russia had been an enemy of the United States and Britain. But when the Germans invaded, the Soviets joined forces with the Allies to ward off Hitler. Now Russians were suffering through one of the worst sieges in history, and they hoped Shostakovich's symphony could help generate sympathy among their new friends in the West. It becomes an important piece of music to win the sympathies of these allied nations. Culture and music and this symphony helped to make, execute this change in, of hearts and minds towards Russia. 
Yeah, so actually, you know, symphony representing so vividly the suffering of the Russian people, I think, helped it. There was just one issue with playing the symphony in the West, actually getting the score out of Russia. Yeah, the score didn't exist in very many copies. It was just, I presume, one copy. Yeah, so technology helped here, so they actually microfilmed it. If you've ever watched a Cold War spy movie, you'll know microfilm. It's that tiny little black thing the heroes try to smuggle out of office buildings in secret compartments while a single bead of sweat rolls down their face. Microfilm is essentially just a series of images reduced in size to fit on a roll of film, like tiny photocopies, perfect for holding important documents. And then it was flown to via Tehran yeah, to the United States, so the, the safe route, apparently. There is, of course, a bit of mystery around it because we never know what really happened. Yeah, it was a secret operation. But it became known as an exciting fact that so much attention would be lavished on a piece of culture, on a piece of music, that it was something very important. When they heard it, most people agreed that this wasn't just any other symphony. What seemed to set the seventh apart was that it was written in a kind of cinematic language that anyone could understand. Even if you didn't have a classical music background, you could connect with it. And even people who were not very familiar with this quite modern idiom in which he was writing could understand it. So I think the first movement really made the symphony. But the interesting thing is that it's not a symphony in one movement, that there are another three movements which contain a lot of mysteries and, and messages that might be very different from this very straightforward patriotic message. People have argued for decades over the supposed meaning behind the seventh, particularly its final movement. Soviet composers back then were expected to create optimistic pieces, but Shostakovich's kind of isn't. The ending booms triumphantly, sure, but the sheer length and intensity he gives to evoking the suffering of his people seems to undercut any fleeting sense of victory. Now, the people of Leningrad had already heard the seventh by then. It was played over loudspeakers in the city. But by the summer of 1942, it was decided they should hear their symphony performed live. As ever with this story, however, the idea would prove less simple than it sounded. The symphony is very, very difficult to perform. It requires huge forces and it requires huge power of breath, for example, from the brass, you know, which people just couldn't play brass instruments if they weren't fed. So they had to request a lot of musicians to come back from the front, which is kind of yeah, a strange counterintuitive thing. But it was seen as a potentially a very important symbolic gesture to show that the city was alive. And uh, there are various remarkable stories, you know, of how these people were almost brought from the dead. You know, some of them were really given up for dead, already lying in a pile of bodies, and then discovered that they were still breathing. And 
Then, of course, they had to be fed for weeks and weeks before they could rehearse. And even when they started rehearsing, they had to take breaks because they were so weak. It's gruesome and almost unbelievable, but it's true. Some members of the orchestra were quite literally pulled from piles of dead bodies in hospitals and in morgues. They'd essentially been left for dead. Some could barely walk, let alone play a violin. Now they were back in the city, sitting in chairs, holding musical instruments, being asked to take on an entire symphony. What's more, for most of them, Shostakovich's score was unlike anything they'd played before. Musicians who might have been more comfortable in a military marching band were suddenly expected to take on a complicated, dynamic, and challenging symphonic piece. Many later reported hating it at first. But they certainly grew to love it after the premiere, when they did it, and when they realized what an incredible event that was. And of course, we also have evidence from people who came to that performance, who could not believe that you could actually come to the Philharmonic. The Philharmonic is a very beautiful building. It's an incredible building, which was used, I think, as a, as a hospital for a time being. And of course, all the crystal chandeliers were wrapped or put away and so on. And yet suddenly it was alive again as a music space. He has a space for music. And... Uh, People just couldn't believe it. So, you know, obviously they were crying, not because they found the music so wonderful, because it was such an emotional occasion. It almost didn't matter what the music was. But the fact that it was about Leningrad, it was dedicated to the city of Leningrad, it was by Shostakovich. I think by that stage, everyone understood that it was better that Shostakovich didn't go to the front yeah, and actually decided to compose the symphony instead, because this was so much more important at that time because morale was in such short supply and that just gave people this boost and people who went to this concert never never forgot it you know they they would still talk about it with tears in their eyes many many decades later The siege of Leningrad lasted 872 days. An estimated 2 million people died, including something like 40% of the city's civilian population. The German retreat was the beginning of the end for Hitler's war and became the defining Soviet military triumph, the ultimate sacrifice for the ultimate victory. But it would also prove to be the height of the Soviets' use of music as propaganda. These days, in Putin's Russia, music is not used as propaganda tool as uh, effectively and as uh, massively as in the Soviet times. This is Artemy Troitsky, a Russian music journalist and academic who studies the role of music in Russia, both in propaganda and in protest. As a boy in the 60s, Artemy lived for a while in Prague, in the Czech Republic. And it was there that he first started to get obsessed with a new type of music, Baroque. 
Yes, it was the Love at the First Sight. Soon as I heard the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Beach Boys and all those bands, it was uh, it was immediately a real hit in my head and heart. I've learned English from translating uh, rock songs. When he returned to Russia as a young man, he found himself in demand as a music journalist because he was one of the only people who could write about Western rock. Most Russians had only heard rock if they'd managed to get their hands on a smuggled piece of vinyl. It was never played on the TV or the radio. Slowly, however, it was starting to creep in. And while the authorities may not have liked the socially liberal attitudes of the Stones or the Beatles, they didn't ban it outright. At least, not at first. They thought it was uh, not nice that the bands are singing uh, bourgeois uh, Western songs, uh, but still uh, they sang in English, so the songs had no, no meaning. But from the beginning of the 70s, we also had some bands who played uh, their own music and wrote songs in Russian. This is when the Soviet authorities really pricked up their ears. Of course, uh, the official Soviet pop music had to be very optimistic, very life-affirming, and preferably also ideologically charged with ideas of communism, uh, Soviet power, Leninism, patriotism, and so on. And young rock bands, instead, they've been singing about loneliness and alienation, and alcohol, drug abuse, sex. So the contents of uh, the songs was considered very harmful and unworthy of uh, young Russian communists. And uh, rock music in general has been banned. In the beginning of the 80s, all significant rock groups have been blacklisted. They couldn't... uh, play in public, let alone uh, be on radio or TV. But at the same time, I must say that this was one of the most exciting periods in the history of uh, Russian underground music, because exactly under this kind of heavy pressure, the best uh, works of Soviet rock music have been created. I mean, you know, the best music is born under the hardest of uh, circumstances. Things got better when Mikhail Gorbachev came to power and started the period of Soviet reform known as perestroika, meaning restructuring. Russian rock bands were catapulted from the underground to the national stadiums. Then, in 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. Behind the Kremlin walls, Mikhail Gorbachev was preparing for tomorrow's meeting of the Supreme Soviet, at which he'll seek to purge communist hardliners and save his presidency. Marina Frolova-Walker was living in Moscow at the time. It's in a huge identity crisis because there are very few events that can tie the nation together. After 1991, a lot of old people said, I feel like I've lived my life in vain. You know, so they had, they had no narrative. They didn't know what happened to all these things that they used to believe in. The Ukrainian forces knew what they wanted and they came in force. The first time we've seen anything like this.
2014, Russia illegally annexed Crimea from Ukraine. The move was strategic. Taking Crimea from a foreign enemy was Putin's attempt to return Russia to its former glory. If you were listening to state-controlled media around the time, you would have heard commentators pushing the idea that the return of Crimea to Russia was the greatest moment in Russian history since victory over the Nazis in 1945. So, of course, that has now been inflated. Yeah, the memory of great patriotic for us. The veterans are dying off, and soon there will be nobody left. It becomes this kind of triumphalist thing that, again, lots of people start resenting because it becomes so ridiculous, it becomes so commercialized. You have all these children wearing war uniforms and things like that, and, and parades which are completely sort of overinflated. As the authorities have tried to draw on the past to reinvigorate Russian identity, they've also attempted to use music as propaganda again. But this time it hasn't worked in quite the same way as it did in Shostakovich's day. There's been several attempts to write very positive praising songs, hymns to Mr. Putin himself. And all those attempts have failed completely. And they've only caused an avalanche of irony and uh, laughter from the audience. What's more, some artists are now doing what Soviet composers like Shostakovich could never have dreamed of doing, criticizing the establishment directly. A lot of classic rock songs from... uh, John Lennon and Bob Dylan and Bob Marley and so on, they're all against, against war. They're all against oppression. They're all against ideological dictatorship and so on. So therefore, we now have plenty of young bands, not necessarily rock bands. They're also hip hop artists and rappers and so on who have created uh, this new wave of protest Russian music. Although it might be harder to ban music outright, cultural censorship still exists. It's just in a different format, and one that's almost as insidious. What is happening now is media dictatorship and commercial dictatorship. What is uh, very typical for the new regime is that they subsidize, they give money to those who are loyal to them, and they don't subsidize, don't finance anybody who they think are not uh, loyal enough and show some signs of being in opposition to the ruling regime. This is happening in all areas of cultural and entertainment activities. If you are a loyalist, then you get unlimited access to TV and radio, unlimited promotion everywhere. You uh, get contracts from the state to produce various things like theater performances, make patriotic movies and so on. So there's no direct ban on oppositional arts and culture including music, but they are simply given hard times and uh, they are pushed into some kind of cultural ghettos. As a member of the Russian punk band Pussy Riot, she was jailed last year for performing this song in a Moscow cathedral 
criticizing the Orthodox Church and Russia's president. You won't hear anti-establishment bans like the well-known Pussy Riot on the radio in Russia today. But this hasn't stopped them from gaining notoriety. If uh, several hundred people will not attend a concert, at the same time, uh, 30 million people could watch their videos and hear their songs uh, thanks to internet. So they haven't stopped the spread of music online. But there are signs that the authorities are trying to reintroduce old Soviet-era propaganda music as they push to create their own narrative of what it means to be Russian. Shostakovich's seventh has been part of that narrative. While the Kremlin was busy signing a ceasefire, its army was scorching Georgian earth. In 2008, during an outbreak of war in South Ossetia, which is a breakaway district of Georgia supported by Russia, the Russian conductor Valery Gergiev was flown in to play the Leningrad Symphony. It was no mistake that they chose that symphony. Some astute figures have pointed out that this time it was the Georgians who were cast in the role of Nazis following their brief attack on the capital city. On the one hand, everyone still believes that this is a very important part of our history that we feel very strongly about. We haven't forgotten it. But at the same time, from the government, you have this quite sometimes crude uh, vulgarization, I would say, of the war. And everyone tries to capitalize on it. In that sense, it becomes divisive again. Yes, uh, because on the one hand, you have uh, something personal that is very real and very sincere, like the memory of the siege. And on the other hand, you have this rather crude propaganda attempt to harness it somehow to promote new ideas about contemporary politics. There's a view in the West of the Russian figure as one doomed to constant suffering, like Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment, forever agonizing over his misdeeds. Or the many millions who were told that Chernobyl, you know, really wasn't that bad, and they should go about their lives as normal. I wouldn't subscribe entirely to this theory, but what I can uh, say absolutely for sure is that hard times do inspire Russian uh, creative people to do interesting and uh, passionate works. And this was the case in the Soviet times, and this is the case in Putin's Russia. So, uh, in a way, it may be said that, uh, that the worse is the situation in the country, the better is uh, the culture that it produces. For me, the story of the Leningrad Symphony is one that shows how music can never just be propaganda. Stalin wanted a symphony to advance his goals, but it never would have worked unless the people of Leningrad themselves had adopted the symphony as their own. And while Putin might be trying to use music to twist the narrative again today, the music Russians really want to hear has simply gone online instead. As for Shostakovich, he walked this fine line with what seems to me at least to be a kind of political genius. Creating a symphony for Stalin that inspired the people of Leningrad to struggle on, while also conveying 
the true horror of what might have been the worst siege in history, leaving all of us with a true work of art that entirely transcends propaganda. Reverberate is created and presented by me, Chris Michael. The producer of this episode was Danielle Stevens. The executive producer is Peter Sale. And the lead producer for Guardian Podcasts is Max Sanderson. Original music and sound design is by Pascal Wise. And music rights clearance was by Tony Orkadesh of Torchlight Music. The development's executive producers were Shanita Scotland and Catherine Godfrey. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.